Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. This episode is sponsored by the Camino Bureau of Tourism. Once you visit, a part of you will always be here. And welcome back to The Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, Season 2, Episode 2, with your host, Ben Siders. That's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis. For those of you who may be new to the show, the recipe is very simple. We start with a dough of interesting questions about geek topics, add a pinch of law and policy, bake at the temperature of this recording studio for about one hour to create a flawlessly balanced conversational souffle, consisting of really no answers uh, and, and usually more questions than we started with. And garnish and repeat. Garnish yeah. to taste, yeah. <laughs> you can find this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod. You can find me, Ben, at Benjamin Siders. You can find Kirk at Kirk DMN. We're yep, back. We're Again, back. We I mean, it's, yeah, oh, this is our, our sort of you know second part of our rebooted second season. Uh, we did get renewed. I think that's you know a, a big thing in conjunction with it. So if, obviously, any sort of new listeners, there's an entire first season out there. We didn't start last episode. We need to start a renewal negotiations earlier than the prior season next time. Uh, definitely, <laughs> I think that's you know one of the issues, and that's uh, you know one of the things that I was uh, just going to mention, sort of you know uh, quickly here. I think in conjunction with it is as part of you know sort of reboot coming around with this. We know we have a bunch of content coming, it's allowing us to set up some stuff for, you know, sort of known things we can do this season, so that's helping, and uh, we should have some really interesting topics coming up, but obviously a lot of it's going to be just when can we get uh, guests in, when can we get stuff scheduled, things along those lines. Yeah, this season's going to have some scheduling and coordination <coughs> challenges that we didn't didn't really have much last season. We only had, I think, one guest last season, Charlotte yep, came made in. Made Charlotte come in. Uh, which was a big hit, you all seem to like that a lot, so we're going to try and get her back, because she's a crowd favorite, and uh, we've got some other folks in the pipeline, too. That we're definitely looking at, and I think that's the the goal for where this is going. We definitely, you know, we know you guys seem to like guests, seem to like uh, discussions on other topics other than just listening to yeah, us. Yeah, they're just tired of listening to us. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Let's talk about AIPLA real quick. Kirk sure. and I both were out in DC. Um, some of you who are listening uh, maybe met us while you were there. I know we got uh, a couple subscribers out there, so maybe you guys are listening to this as your first new episode that'll download it since yeah, you started subscribing. So thank you and welcome. Uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting, Kirk, uh, you and I both attended the copyright committee presentation yep. on uh, on day two on Friday, and uh, part of that presentation was, well, really a couple interesting parts. One was an attorney who was involved with the Star Trek Axonar case. I never got I never got clarity on which side of that he was on, but he was involved apparently. Talked about some of the issues with fan fiction, which has also been a, a crowd favorite topic here. And then we also had one of the lawyers in the Google Books case talking about fair use. And between the two of them, they covered a, a lot of the cases we talked about back in our character copyright episodes. Yep, way back in season one. Yeah, yeah, uh, this this last spring, which I, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, but those episodes have recently gotten a lot of downloads, <laughs> more than they got at the time, so I uh, thought that was interesting. Uh, so we're, 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 we're talking to some of those lawyers we met at AIPLA. A few of them have expressed interest in potentially being on the show and talking about some of the interesting work they've done, so that is another one of the uh, future guest appearances that we may we have. Yep. We hope. 
Also, I don't know. I think I don't know if it's been. It was before our last episode. The Music Modernization Act yep. passed, and I think did we talk about this last time? We talked about it briefly. briefly uh, yeah. Definitely, you know, sort of just gave some basic overview as to what it was. I'm not sure we gave a lot of detail. Yeah, we we did a client alert through the firm we work for, and that actually got more feedback than what we usually get, um, which which is which is by itself impressive. Uh, so I thought maybe we'd do just like a two minute summary yeah. of like what it is for those of you who are interested in music law. It's it's really a big deal. Like our music laws have not substantially changed since. Really, the seventies, nineteen seventies ish is sort of the the it last change. Like, yeah, that wasn't a major, things, major yeah. change. Um, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that was important in that. Seventy two was really yeah. the big one, right? Because in seventy two, the federal government for the first time recognized federal copyrights in songs, recordings of songs. Yep. Uh, songs themselves are already covered back at, since the eighteen thirties. Yeah, but, we had we had the Digital Millennium Copyright Act sort of since then, but I think that that's in some sense not been as important to music, music specific. As yeah. to, you know, the internet. They had DART, which was legislation to kill the digital audio. Tape. <laughs> Inadvertently, yes. <laughs> I mean, Anyone's never in, heard of digital audio tape? You can thank the U.S. Congress for that. So it's funny when we did the committee meeting after um, the actual presentation. Uh, some, uh, one of the general counsels from the copyright office was there. She's kind of going through like a list of what the office is doing this year, and one of her bullet points was clearing out the Dart Fund. And everybody in the room kind of <laughs> looked around like, "What is that?" I was like, "Oh, I know, I've heard of this." So it was like eight cents in there. Like, how much can that be? Yeah. Seriously, it's. I mean, and, and the thing about it is, I think that's the thing with the to really talk about with the music monitor. Act and what happened. Um, we, we've as much as we pick on copyright in this show and sort of you know problems with copyright and things like that. Um, the reality of it is, is that the copyright laws have not been sort of well harmonized with each other. Um, yeah. We have issues internationally, but they haven't even harmonized essentially in the United States with each other. And part of that's because we've had extensions happening piecemeal. Um, we've had kind of these, you know, major changes to copyright law that don't change everything. You know, like yeah. they first acknowledge this is copyrightable. But y- you bump into things that, you know, what happened to things that have already expired? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, how do you deal with, hey, if we're going to, you know, grant this sort of retroactive thing – what does that mean for people who didn't do what they were supposed to do previously, but now would normally be granted retroactive? I'm thinking of the, the fact of, like, you know, a lot of copyrights had the question of would you cr- correctly provide notice, mm-hmm. which used to be an issue. Used to be then a requirement. they said it wasn't. And so the issue with it is, is if it comes back and says, well, now it's not, well, what if you hadn't done it before they changed the law? Um, you know, how does that retroactivity work? And what you really bumped into, and I think the biggest issue in a lot of what the Music Modernization Act was trying to deal with, is just simply. How do you deal with these things when you're either a copyright holder trying to do what you're supposed to do, or more particularly, you're somebody who wants a license to a piece of copyrighted mu- piece of copyrighted work in this case, music in particular, that's trying to do the right thing and just mm-hmm. can't figure out what you're supposed to do. Well, along those lines, so this is something I was thinking about uh, over the last week, and I've, I've not run this by Kirk yet, so I'm going to give this thought Uh-oh. to him cold. Is it just me, or does it seem like the Copyright Act of so our three major IP acts, the Patent Act, the Trademark Act, also known as the Land? Act and then the Copyright Act. The Patent Act to me is, except for maybe pharmaceuticals, written in a relatively technology agnostic way, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think it's very true. I think there's specific stuff with interaction, even just pharmaceuticals, but interaction with the FDA yeah. and sort of a recognition that you, know, you have a second regulatory body that's a very active regulatory body that has a lot of effects you know, on it and 
particularly when it comes to things like generics, mm-hmm. you know, they, they essentially require people to admit to patent infringement in order to approve them. Um, and so you kind of bump into this scenario that says, hey, you need to have some recognition of how these two things interact and what the deal behind it is. But it's not like, well, here's how we do software, and here's how we do mechanical, and here's how we do chemical. Yeah. And it's just other than some extra regulations that apply to certain things that are basically medical therapies yeah. used on humans. And stuff know? like covered business methods, which is subject to only certain yeah. parts of the patent law. Yeah. But, I mean, but yeah, but so there's a couple things, but it's it's not pervasive, right? You're not going to have a whole separate section on music recording technology, for example. Yeah. You really don't have this sort of splitting apart. Um, although within the patent office, it, that happens administratively, but it's not part of the law itself. Yeah. And then trademarks are the same. There's famous marks and unfamous marks, and otherwise not a whole lot of distinctions amongst categories of marks. Yeah. Some special things, you know, for certification marks, but yeah. it's not, they're not going to treat, you know, automotive different yeah. than— A little uh, bit of you know. differences on specimens and, and yeah. examples of use for stuff like service marks versus um, goods marks, things like that. But, yeah, I think— when the idea of saying like, yeah, automotive marks are different than PC marks, which yeah. are different than bread marks, you know, the no, that's not true. The substantive laws basically, there's not like a whole lot of extra provisions. But then you turn to music. <laughs> well, you turn to copyright. <laughs> or copyright, where music in particular has an enormous amount of like European style uh, legislative content explaining how it works, all these compulsory licenses, and, and more so than the other industries. I mean, can you think of another act that will specifically say this definition means ASCAP, BNI, BMI, CSAC, or, or, or an equivalent organization? The, the copyright rules, perhaps ironically, even more so than the patent rules, really feel like a legislative response to changes in technology. Yes. Uh, which which kind of seems non-intuitive because patents are supposed to cover technology, <laughs> not copyrights. But the technology drives, you know, what we want to protect and how we want to protect it. And those those changes kind of, I mean, going back to the printing press, I mean, we only have copyrights because, because we have the printing a printing press. press. Yeah. You know, if, we, if we didn't have printing presses, we wouldn't need this, this idea at all. So when you look at you know, the Music Modernization Act and its antecedents, it just feels like copyright is, is much more industry-specific. And since the legislation is responsive to changes in industries, it seems to track that more closely. Yeah. I think the thing you really see in copyright, and I think a lot of it also, is copyright has a lot of sort of interacting interests, which you really don't necessarily see as much in patent. You know, again, you can look at it and say, like, okay, there's interacting interests in, you know, pharmaceuticals, but those interacting interests are between two different organizations, between Mm -hmm. the FDA and the patent office. In music, you have the idea of sort of the copyright holder looking at it and saying, well, who is the copyright holder? And sort of the generation of these works requires multiple people. In patenting, it's just, okay, these people are all inventors. They're all literally treated the same. same Yeah, take, like, a movie or a video game. Yeah. number of different independent contractors and voice actors and models and people who don't all work for the video game company that get involved as compared to, you know, if you're an inventor working for, I don't know, I mean, a pharmaceutical company, yeah. you're probably just a chemist or a biochemist on the on the staff and, and you work and research and, and, you know, and I think maybe it's because the, the licensing and the transfers of ownerships are different. So, you know, for copyrights, we have, I think, a more acute need to do lots and lots of licenses to small, small works, like in music yeah. in particular. You know, if I'm going to run a radio station, I need these rights to all these different these different things. Yeah, to every different song I'm going to play, which is hundreds. Yeah, whereas, I mean, other than, like, patent trolls, there's no mass patent rights licensing entities. Yeah. They, they just don't exist. Yeah, because nobody needs, you know, for the most part, lic- you know, licenses to a hundred different patents by, yeah. owned by a hundred different entities. Yeah. Whereas a radio station is going to encounter that every day. Yeah, so so you know we're we're probably running long here in our introduction, but um, it's just it's interesting these these copyright you know copyright is sort of the redheaded stepchild of IP, not, you know 
the real IP lawyers don't take it that seriously. <laughs> like, you your hard and soft IP. That's a <laughs> yeah. phrase that gets used a lot. Uh, but but you know the the legislative changes get a lot of attention. I think because they, they are so industry specific, and I think more more understandable and accessible to everyday people. Well, I think part of it's also just and we've said this before. People encounter copyright daily. Yeah, you know the odds of you bumping into a patent, you know, requires you to usually like have a product and notice that it's patented. You're experiencing copyrighted content right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, unless you're you know building something or things like that, your odds of really interacting with patent are relatively small. Whereas your odds of interacting with copyright, you turn the radio on in your car and you're yeah, interacting with everywhere. copyright. You know. Anyway, uh, so how about some legal news and goings on? Um, a couple things uh, we just I just kind of saw this morning on the way over here. Uh, one, did you hear about this? Uh, there's an injunction issued for a, a cheat program in the new the Grand Theft Auto. I guess there's a Grand Theft Auto RPG now, like an online okay. thing. I've never played it, so I don't know. Yep. But somebody made a, a cheat uh, module that would basically modify the client, I think, to arbitrarily inflate your statistics and make it easier to grief other players. <laughs> um, and then uh, Take Two saw it's a preliminary injunction, and they got it. To block the cheat program. Mm-hmm. So um, that's uh, one of those rare cases where I think we look at it and say, well, yeah, that's probably how it should have happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's also a BitTorrent case that I, I thought was interesting because it did not go the way I expected. Uh, so a guy in Oregon was accused of infringing uh, a video of some kind. Um, it was like a, like a magic, you know, how to do magic or something like that. Uh, but the complaint that was filed by the copyright holder to the video basically said, we've traced the IP to, you know, or the source of these infringements to this IP. It's this associated with this subscriber at this house in Oregon. So either he did it himself or he was negligent in managing his network and allowed somebody else to do it. And then the court dismissed it, saying that that was not sufficient facts to state a claim for copyright infringement. Yeah. Which – it's a really low hurdle to be able to state a claim. I mean, that, that's that's hard to not do. Not only that, um, they, they had a chance to amend and still didn't remedy it, and then they had to dismiss, and the court ordered the defendants legal fees paid of $17,000. Yeah, it's an interesting case. I think a lot of what probably came out of this is this: it's securing your Wi-Fi to prevent others from infringing. You know, I have no obligation to secure something to prevent others from infringing. We say that's the next logical conclusion. You know, that's saying that a library has to secure the photocopier in the library to keep others from photocopying books. I mean, you can't make a claim. That's really what this says, too, because the standard for a motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim is even assuming all of this is true, you still haven't said enough to prove that you could possibly win this case. So they're saying even if he should have but didn't secure his network, that's not the basis for claiming he is somehow liable for direct or contributory copyright infringement. That's a big holding. Yeah, and quite frankly, I think it's right. I mean, you know, and and the reason I think it's right is because I think the idea of saying somebody needs to secure their Wi-Fi or else they're, you know, legitimately caused by it, you know, that's a legislative action. That's not something that can basically come out of a court saying that. The court's not going to manufacture a common law, you know, you know, negligence duty to secure your networks for yeah. people who don't know how to do it. Yeah, and again, I think that, you know, you talk about that's like saying, you know, you have an obligation to secure something else. You have an obligation to secure the company photocopier so that people don't do it. You yeah. know, you can take this to the next level's extreme of saying, you know, what do you mean to secure so that somebody can't use it for infringement? You can take the other direction as well and you say, hey, even for securing a Wi-Fi, you know, does that mean if I get somebody illegally hacking into my network, you know, to now distribute child porn, I'm still liable for it? Yeah, that, you know, that seems I mean, very wrong. You know, that seems very wrong in, in the way the thing goes. And so it's... I I think the real problem here is that they they didn't say he did it, and they really couldn't say he did it. It was either he did it or somebody else did it. Yeah, without his knowledge, they you know, needed no, more <laughs> more pre uh, pre pre rule. Uh, what is it? Rule twenty six. I forgot uh, the conference that you have to have with the court. But there's a remember, yeah. there's a conference with the parties that you have. To <laughs> I'm not schedule a and 
Uh, but before that, you can conduct some discovery. They, they really needed to do more to, to, to establish this connection. They didn't do it. Yep. Uh, also interesting, uh, Kirk, do you remember Manamana? <laughs> Manamana, oh, so, man. If you don't remember Manamana, just Google Manamana and Muppets and you'll find it. It was a, a Muppet song and I think the very first episode of The Muppet Show that was revived when they redid The Muppet Show in the 90s. Uh, there's actually a dispute over the copyright to that song. This, I, didn't, I didn't know any of this background. Apparently the song was written for a 1968 Italian film and on a side <laughs> note, I'm trying to imagine what movie would have used that song. <laughs> Probably The Muppets. <laughs> yeah. uh, but um, the, the composer apparently wrote the song and the movie studio sued for copyright infringement in the U.S., I think in the U.S., and it was dismissed for lack of standing on grounds that the contract between the composer and the movie studio didn't clearly enough, you know, make make uh, satisfy the court that the studio actually acquired from the composer the copyright rights, and they had the same analysis whether under U.S. or Italian copyright law. So this one's just interesting because. We see this a lot, just every day in our careers. Unclear documents where people go and find some Franken contract online and say, "I don't need a lawyer; I can just do this myself." And then a year later, you, know, you get something like this, where had, had you just written it properly in the first place, this wouldn't be an issue. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. I think it, it, it's a really good sort of point to point out is that a lot of times people, when they're they have copyrighted content and stuff like that, they're not looking at this as being valuable. You know, it's it's the thing where it's there's huge amounts of songs written every day, ninety nine point nine percent of which nobody will ever. Here, and so I think there's a, a big feel of like, oh, I just wrote this little tiny thing. Yeah, it's, it's never going to matter. It's never going to matter. And then you bump into these cases where something takes off, becomes viral, whatever it is, in sort of today's world, and suddenly it does matter. And you know, you didn't put the the pieces in the places you should have earlier, and now you're coming back saying, hey, we want to try to put back what we intended this to be. With really no records of what you yep. intended this to be, or yeah, you know, or, or you have a document and you know you, you say, well, I, you know, I don't need to make this that clear and explicit in here because we all know each other and we get along and we're good friends and you know well, we we all know what the deal is. Well, yeah. but for, you know it, this is 1968. You know, 50 years <laughs> later when when we're fighting about it, uh, what was the deal? Yeah, what was the deal? And is everybody even still alive to say what the deal was? So um, there you go. And then finally, I saw. I think you may have sent this to me. Someone did that. the The Disney character case we talked about with the characters made for hire. That case yep. is moving forward. I think it's been narrowed the scope of the issues, okay. but it is proceeding. So there you go. Some some legal news. We got to check on that Sabak case and see what's happening to that <laughs> too. I, I meant to, and I, I forgot. Well, anyway, so today's topic uh, is going to be a little different. We're going to talk mostly about rights of publicity, and we're also going to get into a subject I don't think we've ever discussed before, which is price fixing. Yeah, it's <laughs> an antitrust concept. Yeah, antitrust, and the the the. The, the you know the lens through which we're going to examine this is um, a video game. Happens to be a, a sports video game, but don't don't let that turn you off if you're not into sports. Because uh, I, I am into sports, and I have never ever played any of these games. Yep. Uh, I've seen them. I know what they're about. But actually, take that back. I've played the NHL version uh, okay. a couple years ago. But uh, so uh, I believe I played some NASCAR versions. Yeah, probably. Um, so the the background of the game is from you know starting in 1993. I'm sure you all seen the EA uh, games. The Madden game comes out every year. There's an NBA 2018. There's yep. a, I mean, they even use it to predict the football outcome. You know, they, they do. The computer, the computer yeah. and see what the football predicts for the Super Bowl outcome. Yeah, they'll put the AIs in charge of it and just see who who, who wins each year to yeah. compare that to the actual outcome. So these are very famous. I'm sure you see the ads. I don't want the uh, EA. It's in the game. I don't know if that's what they do now. But it's what they <laughs> used to do. What they used to do. That's um, not trademark infringement, was it? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> fair, nominal fair use. Um, so they started making uh, an NCAA version of this in 1993. They used 
the college football teams that everybody uh, knows and loves. And the game allowed players to be the, you know, their alma mater or whatever team they wanted. There's all kinds of different modes. And one of the things that these this whole line of games really tries to capture is accuracy. They want it to really look and feel like the experience of coaching these teams or playing on these teams. I mean, just like uh, to some extent, uh, like a, a, an online RPG would, you want to really feel like you're stepping into this world. Yeah. You know, just for a little bit. It, it, it's escapism just like all the rest of the escapism that we really <laughs> like. It's Dungeons and Dragons for sports fans. Yes. Um, and so, but the, one of the problems with NCAA is that, um, you know, college athletes have this amateurism principle. They can't be compensated for, um, you know, for, for the, the use of their names and likenesses. So, yep. and, and they get in trouble for that. It can render them ineligible for their scholarships or to play and so forth. So... To, to sort of get around this, EA would include the players in the game. So let's say we had our uh, EA, uh, you know, NCAA football game from you know, 2010. Yep. Well, then all the teams that were eligible for Division One football in 2010 are there, and the or players at least all the ones anybody cares about yeah, to play. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, the players, uh, the jerseys are accurate and correct. The logos are correct. That information is all licensed from the universities through a collegiate licensing collective. I have the name in here somewhere. Collegiate Licensing Corporation is the mass rights. It's sort of like an ASCAP for college uh, licensing. Licensing. Uh, so, you know, they, the stadiums look the same. The cities look the same. They sort of like mimic like it's a broadcast. And uh, the, the rosters are the same. So if you've got, you know, 87 players, then those numbers are all uh, in the game for that year. And it's got biographic information about each quote-unquote player, although there's no name. It just says, you know, player number 77. Yep. But the player's height, weight, skin tone, appearance, build, all that matches whoever wore, you know, number 77 for that team for that year. Down to the point where EA would actually send surveys to equipment managers for teams asking what type of equipment each player wore, what style of face mask that can make it all as accurate as possible. And, as we'd expect, Kirk, someone got paid for all this. Yeah. The schools. <laughs> the schools. Through and the licensing collective. I think it's also important to note, and one of the things you mentioned, it wasn't just the equipment that they wore. They did also get basic, you know, demographic information about the players themselves. Yeah. Highway, uh, hometown. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's not that they're just focused on equipment at this point in time. Now, obviously, you know, they, they've, when you think it's particularly football, most of what you're going to see is equipment. You mm-hmm. know, that's the thing with it. But obviously, you know, there's a number of distinctive football players you know where you know like how they wear their hair is visible facial features facial features eye stuff color, like that yep. a facial hair uh, yeah yeah it was it was it was pretty faithful but but the names were not there uh, but one feature the game did have is you could download rosters from online you could also update the names of the players in the game once you bought it and Give you could export yeah you could export the roster online so you know what happens every year somebody goes in to their favorite team and just adds all the correct names exports the roster puts it on a sharing website everybody downloads it and voila we've you know we've all kind of worked around the issue aren't we so clever <laughs> exactly well <laughs> We were so clever for a long time. <laughs> this this worked for 20 years until in 2013, uh, two players, uh, the, the main plaintiffs were named Ed O'Bannon and Sam Keller. O'Bannon was actually not a football player, uh, was a UCLA basketball player. Uh, and um, uh, Keller was in a former Arizona State, and I think Nebraska player. Um, anyway, there, there, so there was a college uh, basketball version, too, of this. Which I don't think was nearly as successful, but it had all the same issues. Yeah. But I mean, there's, there's every sport basically has these. I yeah. mean, there's there's amateur versions, there's college versions of them, and there's professional versions of virtually every sport. Like I, I comment about, you know, I played the, the NASCAR version for car racing. So, mm-hmm. 
The issues are a little simpler there, I think, because it's 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 professional. It's easier to get yeah, like a license from that. And that's that's a key thing to keep in mind with this is that EA also puts out professional games, you know, based yep. on the, upon the professional sports. There, there are specific organizations, maybe yep. the players' union, that is licensing players' likenesses, everything on those lines. So, like, none of the issues we're going to talk about in this basically exist when it comes to the professional games because there, there's an organization that yeah. basically says they can be paid for this, they yep. are paid for it, it is a job, um, and therefore, sort of this whole thing goes away. One of the real keys about this is this is for amateur players, for yep. players that are in college where there's a very particular requirement that they can't be paid. Yeah, and that's going to wind up being the nut of, of all of this is, is the NCAA's involvement in this. Um, so anyway, uh, O'Bannon and Keller filed a class action lawsuit against the NCAA itself, against EA, and also against the Collegiate Licensing Organization for using their likenesses without permission and saying it was a violation of the right of publicity. At this point, we should probably explain what is a right of publicity and why yeah, do we have it? We talked about it a little bit previously in conjunction with this, but the right of publicity is basically that sort of every person, now it's primarily important for famous people, but it does actually apply for every person. Every person has essentially the right to not be misrepresented yeah. as themselves. It's so, to control the commercial use of your personality, yeah. your identity, your appearance. Yeah, the commercial use of it. So the example would be is it's um, if you're going to go out and you know somebody's going to say, hey, you know, it turns out Ben Siders really, really loves this brand of toilet paper. Mm-hmm. He's got to be compensated for that, you know, even because the idea behind it is, is my that licensing you can't fees just, are substantial. <laughs> yeah, you can't just say that, even if it's true. You can't just say that because it's commercial use of of you know my co-host's personality mm-hmm. in a way he didn't approve of, and so it's kind of this idea that says, hey, I get to approve of somebody using it. The example I always use is right of publicity, and I actually think it's one of the 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 basis of rights of publicity, even though it's not directly publicity. If you ever encounter products which are sold in England, a lot of times one of the things you'll encounter is a number of them have the royal crest on them, and they say by her by the order of Her Majesty the Queen, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is, that this is something which is served, um, you know, at various royal functions. You're not allowed to put that on unless it's true, and basically it's only true if the queen tells you it's true. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's a, a little bit of sort of the core of rights of publicity, but this is much more saying, as opposed to it being a crest or a representation or a trademark, the person has the right of publicity in themselves. And what that usually comes down to is what is themselves, and most commonly what it's associated with is their name. Usually, yeah. Usually their name um, is what it is, something to identify them. We talk a lot of times, in, and you encountered in other areas of law, you encountered in HIPAA and healthcare, you encountered in, in the new sort of, you know, Data Protection Act. There's a lot of this idea of identifying information. Yep. And the vast majority of people, when they say identifying information, the name is obvious. Yep. A name is an obvious piece of identifying information. But it can as also just be appearance. sort of invoking your general personality and identity. And the classic example is the Vanna White robot commercial. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, and what you basically bump into in conjunction with that is the idea that sort of says, hey, some people, and, and again, a lot of times when you're talking about these, you're talking about famous people because they're recognized, they're almost recognized as archetypes, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is, you know, Vanna White in, the, in, in turning the letters of Wheel of Fortune was so well known that even for, that. The, for that that even making something which you know is a robot designed to turn these figures could potentially violate a right of publicity even though it's clearly not her it's clearly intended to be her yeah um, whether as a parody or whether as as a sort of direct representation you're invoking her you want you're people who look her. at that to think of her yeah and 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 maybe it's the juxtaposition of of the, the blonde android you know that makes it interesting or funny but the bottom line is you're talking about Vanna White whether you use her name or even her picture or yeah not. and there's a lot of stuff in life to publicity that basically and, and again a lot of the thing with rights to publicity is to basically say like 
I should be able to say that I shouldn't be associated with something. I don't mm-hmm. necessarily want to be associated with a product I don't want to be associated with. You know, if you want me to be associated with your product, I have to sign up for it and agree. Now, some p- parties may very well be willing to sign up for anything. Yeah. But I others think are definitely going to be more controlling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I think a lot of people are going to be more controlling. They're going to say, hey, I don't want to be mm-hmm. associated with this product. I don't care how much you're going to pay me. I'm not going to sponsor your product. Which is also say. It's election day as we're recording this today. Yes. Um, so there are some exceptions to this rule, though, for people who are famous and particularly famous in politics. There is a First Amendment limitation to the right of publicity, which is why every political pack commercial you've ever seen always shows the the evil candidate yeah. in, in slow motion, black and white, grainy footage, <laughs> uh, accompanied by dark, slow violin music, and then followed by the bright, happy color footage of the candidate you're supposed to like walking upright and not slouched over. Do you see how you're being manipulated, people? Um, um, yeah, exactly. But I think the thing about it is, is it's what's referred to as the newsworthy exception. Yes. Um, and so basically there, there's a recognition. It's a public interest exception. Yeah, there's a public interest that, you know, anybody who is newsworthy, we yeah. need to be able to provide news without compensating them. Because obviously otherwise, you know, we, we would have far more fake news uh, yeah. than we definitely did today, regardless of how much fake news you think there is today. It's almost like a fair use type analysis, basically. It's it, like the Republic won't function if we can't do yeah, this. It kind of is. I mean, I think the real behind it is and the idea behind the newsworthy is you can't you shouldn't be able to stop you know the, a lot of the idea behind right of publicity is that i can stop you from associating me with something i don't want to be associated with but if my being associated with that is newsworthy and something people know about i shouldn't mm-hmm. be able to stop that particularly if i'm just showing things that actually happen you yeah. know assuming i can get a copyright to the actual footage of it uh the people that happen to be in it if i'm doing it for news reporting type purposes yeah. to convey factual information or educational information to people it, it seems like a pretty clear public policy interest yep. and yet we should be able to do and something we're not going to get into in this show but it's it's worth reporting yeah, especially if we get Charla back in here, she does a, a great example in conjunction with it. There's a lot of problems right now in right of publicity associated with social media. Mm-hmm. And literally that, what is newsworthy, sort of what is not newsworthy, um, you know, when a celebrity gets a candid photo taken and what is shown in that photo suddenly becomes valuable to somebody. Particularly when and what they're doing is not a matter of public interest. Like, or, yeah. or maybe in your, you and me, our reckoning, should not be. Like, there was one case, we'll have Charlotte talk about it, where an actress walked out of a pharmacy, like, wearing sunglasses, not dressed to attract any attention, you know, try, trying to just go about her everyday business with a couple of bags of goods, and some paparazzi took a picture of her and put it online. Yep. You know, well... Well, she happens to have a, a, a you know a promotional deal with a different pharmacy, so all of a sudden it is a matter of public interest that she's got a deal with pharmacy A and she's shopping at pharmacy B, or or is it? And or, that's or I think it, the yeah. thing you sort of bump into. And you know, again, I think this is a just a little bit of preview when we get Charlotte back in here again to talk about. These are thorny issues oh, today, Dan. Right publicity used to be relatively easy. Nobody cares. No, well, nobody cared, but it was also right publicity was very confined. Yeah. You know, is it a TV ad? Is it a radio ad? Is it a newspaper ad? If it's none of these things, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, and <laughs> you also had somebody that was that served a filtering or screening function. Yeah. You know, is, does it go in the paper or not? Well, we're going to talk to the photographer. We're going to get clearances. We're going to you know make sure that it it, it meets the newsworthiness and, and it's the kind of thing that we would put in a newspaper with limited print space. Yeah, but on the internet, there's infinite. Print space. You yeah. can dump as much garbage as you want out there. Yeah, and so I think that's the thing. And so it's again, I think that you know, from our point of view, and sort of you know, with this topic, there is a newsworthiness exception here, which is an example of just to use a simple example of things like the NCAA. Obviously, you can show in a news report, a sport, in a sports yeah. segment of a news report. Here's the highlight from the film yeah. that obviously shows a player scoring a can, touchdown, yeah. and it's obvious which player it is. You can use their names. You can talk <laughs> about what happened. They threw 14 passes. They completed 12. I'm obviously talking about Iowa, since nobody can nobody 
throws a pass in the Iowa games. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, you, you can report what actually happened during the game because it's news about an entertainment event. Yep. That's fine. You can do that. But this was not that. This, yes. <laughs> this was a video game, which is not the actual people doing this. Uh, and that's what the court said. Um, the e, uh, EA argued that they had a First Amendment right to use the likenesses in this way, and the Ninth Circuit did not buy it. They said, no. Um, the similarities between the players and their game avatars was sufficient for the players to have rights of publicity in the avatars used by EA, that the changes were minimal, uh, they were given the exact same context as their real-life counterparts, down to the equipment that they wore and where they're from, and so uh, you know EA lost. And there was a settlement uh, of the class action for $60 million, of which uh, each player involved got about $1,200, which, you know, that's not bad. Yeah, you know, considering how many copies were sold, you know, and they didn't have to do anything they weren't already doing. Uh, so each player got twelve hundred hours, but there was twenty nine thousand <laughs> athletes that were involved and protected by this. And then, of course, the attorneys got their their fair share, which was uh, eighteen point eight million. Seems fair. Yeah, of course, yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, so it's a result. Which, can you tell which side it is? Are we are not the sports stars? We are the attorneys. Yeah, that's class action bar. Um, so as a result of this uh, case, EA could not make the games unless they paid the players for their likeness rights. Seems fair, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean that's well, and that seems to be the outcome of what we expect from this is that you know, hey, yes, these are clearly these players. Yeah. You know, yes, they weren't using the names; they were using pretty much everything else. Is are they identifiable? Of course, they are. Yeah. You know, yeah. This it seems like this would be the logical place that you would go in, in likeness rights. EA agreed. They said several times they'd, they'd pay the players, especially at the rate that was calculated, and as well as these games sold. Uh, I mean, if you don't know, college football is a big deal, even bigger now than it was back when this went on. It's a yeah. huge money maker, uh, more so every year. So EA said, "Sure, we'll pay them. Um, you know what? And then, then we can actually add their names. It makes the game even more accurate. So yep. yeah, sounds great. Uh, but there was a problem. Yep. <laughs> and that's, NCAA, I, there's the rub. NCAA said, no, you, you can't uh, you can't do that because uh, if the players make any money during school from their identity rights or they're otherwise paid in connection with their performance on collegiate sports teams, then um, then they're no longer eligible to play at all. They it's lose their scholarships. NCAA rules. Yep, they're, they're out. So." And yeah, this is this is you know as I said, I, there's a rub. Um, what we're bumping into here is you know if this would have been professional athletes and we would have reached this point, you know, with it they would have paid the professional athletes whatever their asking rate was via the the athletes union, and this would be over. The problem with it is is that what you bumped into is EA Sports was now told in order to use this you have to pay them, and then on the other from the organization on the other and side the players said, don't get you paid. can't pay them. Yeah, and the issue with it is is it's not that EA violates any rules by paying them; it's that the player violates yeah. the rule by taking them. I mean, EA could have gone around the NCAA entirely and said, fine, we're not going to license from you. We'll just go directly to every one of these football players. I mean, there's probably 1,000 or 2,000 uh, Division One well, players. Well, there's 29,000 according well, to the payout. Well, that's over the course <laughs> of the whole time. You know, for football, there's 120-some Division One teams, and each one's probably got 100 players, scholarship, and walk-on. Yep. So do the math. You're talking 10,000 players. Like, it, it would be a hassle, but you could go do that. Uh, but the problem is the players can't accept the money because then they, they lose their scholarship. Yep. So, so EA uh, canceled the game. Weirdly, though, this was not the end of it. Yeah, and again, I think the, the, the fun thing to hear, and it's the thing I would really sort of point out in here because I think it's a valuable thing to keep in mind, is EA canceled the game because they couldn't get the rights they needed, which they were completely and totally willing to pay market rates for. 
And this is this is the United States. And entitled law under and law to do. I mean, the yeah. NCA is not the government. They have no legislative authority over yep. anybody. All they can do is set the conditions under which you are eligible to participate in NCAA athletics. Yeah. But since that's where all the money is, you know, <laughs> you don't have much choice. So we, we literally have an organization here that is is ready and willing to pay market rates for what it's what it, it wishes to acquire. And players who are willing to accept. And players who are willing to accept. Presumably. And an organization sitting in the middle, which is the NCAA, saying we can't have this trend. Transaction. And again, I think one of the things we really want to hit on in this, the NCA is not the government. No. This is not a government a organization, organization saying you can't do this. The government of the United States has said this transaction is completely allowed. The court has even said this is the transaction that's supposed to happen. The NCAA is a private organization, but what the NCAA basically does is say it's NCAA sports. There is a sports it's, it's organization. It's a standard setting it's a standard body for setting how these body. athletic competitions are going to you know, be done with uh, with college athletics. Yep. Yeah. So what we have in this situation is basically willing buyer, willing seller, uh, which is really enough as the Music Modernization Act, you know, sort of, you know, <laughs> re- reference here to coming back in. We have willing buyer, willing seller, but we essentially have an organization sitting in the middle, which is a private organization. And that takes us to our next piece of this case. So O'Bannon wasn't done yet. Uh, he then filed another lawsuit, another class action, saying that the NCAA's refusal to let the players license their identities was a violation of federal antitrust laws, the Sherman Act. Yep. Um, so uh, this is an interesting theory, because normally, normally the antitrust laws uh, hold that th- there's two parts to it. One is is the traditional Teddy Roosevelt trust-busting thing, where you can't have two companies get together and engage in price-fixing, yep. uh, which is a variation of this. This is a situation where they said the NCAA essentially is a monopoly over college athletics, and it has arbitrarily price-fixed the value of collegiate players' uh, likenesses at $0. Yep. Now, the other thing I think to keep in mind in conjunction with this is the NCAA is also not a union. No. Um, so we look at this and say, hey, we've got the NFL. We've got you know sort of all the aspects in the NFL. There is a universal organization which holds all the rights to the mm-hmm. players, likenesses, et cetera, in, in conjunction with the NFL. But that's a player's union, and that's acceptable because they, they've gone through all the various laws they have to be in order to be that. Mm-hmm. The NCAA isn't this. And I think that's where we're seeing this case now comes from. We've got this organization that sort of says, hey, there's all this, these ways that this can be done within the law mm-hmm. that are well-established, that are long-running. It just so happens that in this situation, none of them apply. Yeah, and, and in the NCAA case, uh, I keep saying blurring AA together. I don't, I've heard people say NC2A, NCAA, NC whatever. NCAA, yeah, is common. <laughs> I just say NCAA. Um, yeah, so uh, what's interesting is that the NCAA, it, it is, as it says, the National Collegiate Athletic Association. I think that's what it stands for. Yep. But it's it's kind of like the NFL. The NFL is a league of, of team owners, essentially, who agree to compete in a certain way. The NCAA is the same thing for universities. And the court in this case agreed that through the NCAA, the member universities had collectively agreed to a price-fixing scheme as to the value of the likenesses of players playing sports for them. Uh, the court found that the players had a market, obviously, for their identities, and that it was being uh, improperly restricted, uh, and that there were less restrictive alternatives to satisfy um, uh, you know, what the NCAA wanted to do. So the, the district court, the trial court, um, ordered that the scholarships be raised to cover the actual cost of attendance uh, to the schools and to pay the players $5,000 per year in deferred compensation. Now, that last piece was removed later. Those of you who are sports fans will say, wait a minute, the players aren't getting paid. No, they're not. The Ninth Circuit um, upheld the finding that the NCAA was engaged in anti-competitive activity, and they upheld the cost of attendance requirement, but they reversed the $5,000 per year stipend is excessive and, and unnecessary 
Perry and found that it was not uh, not not as, as effective as, at preserving amateurism as not allowing compensation. So that part was thrown out. So. We're left in a, in, a, in a quagmire now. Um, yeah. You know, EA anybody else can't really make a game that really uses the teams as they are each year, unless they pay these players who would be happy to get paid, I'm sure. Um, and um, you know, the players are getting a little bit of a better deal, I, I guess. They're getting more through their scholarships now, but yep. not everybody's on a scholarship. You have plenty of walk-ons, and they're usually want, going to be included in a game like this too. Uh, and so, there's really no way for this game to get made right now. Um, and this this resulted in the immediate aftermath in a lot of criticism of the NCAA. And there was for a couple years, because I follow this stuff um, relatively closely as a sports fan, uh, quite a bit of talk of well, the day is coming when the players are going to start getting paid. Uh, but what you know, the what really holds that back is you can't just pay the football players. You got to pay everybody. Yeah. Uh, we have Title IX, and you can't you know prefer football or basketball over volleyball or anything else. Yep. And you can't prefer men's sports over women's sports. So whatever dollar amount they decide they get to, they're going to pay football players. They're, they they are all but required to pay the same amount to everybody. Yeah. And, and I think that what we're what we're really bumping into is. You know, at least when it comes in, and we're, I think for you know any of our, our foreign audience, when we're talking about football here. We're obviously talking about American football. Yeah. Um. You know, but you know what we're what we're really seeing is American football at the college level, American basketball at the college level, is on par in popularity with their professional counterparts, which is not true of essentially any other sport. I think professional baseball is vastly more popular than the college version is. Professional yep. hockey is much more popular than the... There's the virtually no market is. for college hockey. Yeah, there's virtually no market for I mean, college outside hockey. Outside the players and their family and a couple yeah. of dedicated fans. And so what, you're, what you really bump into is you get these huge markets for certain sports, but at the same time, you've got to kind of make the rules for whatever this is going to be across all sports to have it a fair playing field. You also have far more amateur sports than you have professional sports. You know, I mean, you're going to have NCAA rules when it comes to things like swimming at the college yeah. level, which is, you know, arguably accepted probably the very, very highest level, not professional, and mm-hmm. even there probably isn't. Well, in college, you've got you've got golf, you've got lacrosse, men and women's field hockey. Yep. Uh, I'm from Iowa, so wrestling's a big deal. Uh, you know, tennis. I mean, there's a lot of sports, and you know, this also plays out differently from school to school. So, you know, Iowa, my alma mater, has a, a decent number of sports. I don't know how many, but there's probably 12 to 14 men's and women's uh, sports. But, you know, other schools don't do that. If you get to, like, a lot of the schools in the South that are more football-centric, they may only have, you know, a half dozen sports uh, for men and women, which means all the money can get, be funneled into football. So they can afford to pay this because they have fewer athletes on scholarship than, you know, than, than you know, a small public session, a small, yeah. a, a relatively uh, lightly funded public school like Iowa. And I think we can also jump on this, and we can also look at it and say, I think, you know, this is part of the reason the NCAA is so very defensive of the amateurism mm-hmm. position is when you look at it and you say, hey, yes, there are these huge numbers of sports. Sports is a big learning activity at colleges, many of whom are not making football teams that make it onto national TV. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't go to you know, a Division One school, so it's one of those <laughs> things where it's very easy for me to look at it and say, nobody cares who's on our You're football team. You're the classic team. small liberal arts college guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things that happens. But, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where you look at it and, you know, you sort of you, you come to these things with it. It's the NCAA coming in and saying, you've got maybe 20 or 30 schools, which this is hugely important, which Mm -hmm. there's vast amounts of money in, and the rest of all college athletes are really sort of not in this. We can't be catering towards those, you know, 30 or whatever it is. 
30 schools or whatever that number is. You want the tail to wag the dog. Yeah. Although in this case, it's more like the head wagging the dog, I guess. Because, I mean, the, the so these sports are, are big revenue generators. Yeah. I mean, even at, even at a school like Iowa, which is not historically an awesome program, uh, still the, the football program alone pays for itself and every other sport on campus. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a big deal and there's a lot of money at stake. And that's the thing with it is we're looking at there is a huge amount of money in this you know, deal as to you know, whatever it might be. And how do you deal with the fact that we have this huge amount of money in a very small percentage of you know, these sports? And our, our goal of these sports is not supposed to be that these are for profit, but they have become so. And I think that's the, the question we're really wrestling with here. And it's not a question in some sense, a legal question. It's almost a, a moral question that we sort of bump into. It's a kind of is, policy question. Is this, yeah, is this game not being made because of the fact that we really do want to say it shouldn't be. As yeah. much as we can look at it and say there's a demand for it, that you know people want this because they, they you know, this is a, profe- a semi-professional organization, we really looked at it and say, you know, yeah, this game can't be made, and the reason this game can't be made is because it shouldn't be made. And this this issue is kind of unique to to American college football because I think it used to apply to basketball too, but probably doesn't so much anymore because so many kids just go straight from high school to the NBA now, or, or only play one year in basketball and get out. Yeah, but the NFL rules require you to play, in most instances, two years at least of college football or an equivalent before you're eligible for the NFL draft. So the American college system is effectively the farm league for the NFL. And so you have this amateurism rule and all these lines. uh, There's so much money involved. It just, it it seems like those things are not accidents that they happen together. And this, this issue right now is you know, seems to be unique to sports, but I don't think it's going to stay that way. No. It's it's going I mean it kinda of already has bled out into other areas. We we talked, I think, in one of our episodes about a Blizzard employee who recorded a, a Murloc sound for a, a Blizzard game. Yep. And after she left, she later I think filed a lawsuit or sought some sort of compensation for the use of her likeness. That was the right, like publicity yeah, right a publicity case in, 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 in the recording of that Murloc sound. And as games increasingly use uh, you know live action actors or motion capture you know i you i could show you a movie that just has the motion capture of two different actors walking with like a wireframe and i i think uh, i think for certain actors you would be able to tell who generated the motion capture just based on how they walk yeah there's definitely i mean some nature of what that you know what that is and you know so much of it now is also even for facial actors doing mm-hmm. animation things like that this is an area that's bleeding out of sports we're, we're looking at the idea of now saying hey You've, you've got rights of publicity stuff where people can potentially be identified. And, and we're also seeing it in data protection. We're seeing it – we're seeing right of publicity sort of becoming a more important thing of the idea that says you need to have a right in your identity, I guess mm-hmm. is the, the best way to put it. And somebody shouldn't be able to take your identity from you, shouldn't be able to do it. I mean we talk about identity theft, you know, that sort of, you know, being a, a, a crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we – what I think we're really seeing in this is stuff like how does this bleed over? And it's – it's not a new problem. You definitely had this. I mean, you have issues with like model releases, you know, going back 50 years yeah. where, you know, a model would allow pictures to be taken for use in certain companies' advertising. You know, it may have been a limited license to how they could be used, what they could be used for. 
back before they're famous, they become famous, those pictures get sold to somebody else, get used in somebody else's advertising, and suddenly you end up with this kind of thing, and it's, well, but that's what the contract said could happen. But again, it never would have happened, except for the fact that the underlying person became famous. It's kind of a version of the song issue we talked about before, where you record or make some little some little ditty, and then yep. it winds up going viral, and all of a sudden it's worth a ton, but since you didn't paper the record over in the first place with adequate documentation, yep. you know, and there's an economic inefficiency there. I mean, you're not going to go and you know draft these contracts for every last thing you yep. do. And amateur, yeah, amateurism becoming an issue. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, and, and the reason I used to sort of amateur becoming is let's just talk about the music thing and the concept of YouTube. Mm-hmm. And you know, you have artists who have made their names. I mean, you just throw, throw it out there, Kane Brown, um, in the country world, who's basically made his name as a YouTube artist and is now an extremely successful recording, you know, professional recording artist. Where you kind of look at it and say, he started off as an amateur. When did he cross over? Yeah. And so if we look at this and say there's a you know there's an amateurism type of thing, we kind of look at this and say, yes, we want to protect amateurism. We want to let people sort of do this thing without it being paid, without it being compensated, without them having to be good at it, so to speak. <laughs> I mean, and sometimes that's, that's what makes it entertaining. Yeah, and sometimes <laughs> that's the purpose of amateurism is to really say, hey, yes, you should be allowed to play football, even if you're no good at it. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's sort of the, the B movie version of, of sports. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we've really got that. I think it's it's one of these things you're really seeing becoming a big issue, and that's part of the reason I think we wanted to talk about it in this episode is. I think right of publicity and sort of right and identity is in something that's coming more and more important. Something we may very well touch on again later on this season, but we're really seeing in law right now mm-hmm. this concept of ownership of yourself becoming a valuable thing and becoming a much more important thing and the law struggling with how do we deal with this? It really has been a struggle. When I was in law school, I did a summer doing research for one of my law professors, uh, Neil Richards at WashU, who was really into data privacy issues and really on, on the cutting edge of this stuff. And there's a, you know, at the time he was drafting a paper on it and we were doing a lot of research into different conceptions of, of, of the, the legal sort of analytical framework for ownership of data about yourself. So you've got your personalities, one thing, but what about all these data profiles that these companies develop of us uh, based on our online behavior? They don't know who we are. We're just some number in a database. I mean, that's an identity, I suppose, but it's not a personally identifiable. I, I can't trace that back and say, this is Ben well, Sanders. Can or, or you know, maybe they can, <laughs> Cambridge. Um, yeah, so, I mean, th- this issue is coming up uh, more and more, and we're not really sure how to deal with it. You know, U- Europe's kind of on the, on the leading edge of this with GDPR. I've got my complaints and criticisms about how exactly they've done that, but they're, they, they are doing something. That can't be denied. Um, and, and along these lines, is this is the same line-drawing exercise with professionals versus amateurs going to creep up in other places? So I'm thinking of things like, um, you know, setting aside regular sports, esports. We have yep. other things where, you you know, athletics are different because the, the level of physical investment and natural talent required to participate competitively, even at low collegiate levels, is a thousand times more athletic, you know, potential than, than this room has collectively. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, neither Kirk nor I are going to play any college athletics, but we both play Hearthstone. We're both pretty smart. And if we played enough, you know, we could potentially be competitive Hearthstone players, yeah. right? And I mean, and there are players of huge numbers of online games. I mean, Fortnite, let's just talk about that yeah. one briefly, you know, which are paid and paid large amounts of money for their ability to play video games. So do you, do you, do you 
have a risk at some point or just like, you know, what about college students who are on music scholarships and they start putting stuff out on YouTube? You know, there's no NCAA governing music scholarship, so it's not quite the same issue. Yep. You know, there's no amateurism issue. But then that, that goes back to do we, do we even need an NCAA anymore? Yeah. Well, let's get really geeky. What about the math team? Yeah. Or the chess team. Or the chess team. Um, you know, and, you know, I mean, the chess team is a good example because it's we're starting to see competitive chess becoming a little more mainstream. And you've in, seen talk in, in of chess and things like that becoming maybe Olympic-level competitions. Yeah. And so you kind of bump into that. Wait, wait a minute. Is there another question between where's amateur and where's professional? Um, and, you know, and I always remembered it. I always learned that, you know, amateurs weren't paid. Professionals were. That yeah. was, the, that was the, the, the dividing line. What we're really seeing now is the fact that it's not clear where that lies because it's not like you're necessarily being paid directly anymore. And again, this is where I think YouTube is a great example. You know, if I'm putting advertising revenue up on my own YouTube stream, I'm not technically being directly paid. Mm-hmm. I'm being the you know the, it's I'm being paid based upon just hits based upon sort of the fact that I happen to be popular. The advertiser doesn't necessarily know that that's me, you know, mm-hmm. that that's generating those hits, but that's what's generating those hits. Um, they're just paying for hits, and so it's a really interesting thing where I think you get into this now, where we've we've really seen a sort of smashing up of revenue models. We've seen a smashing up of the idea of identity, recognizing that right of publicity when sort of these laws were all written and all created was very, very particular. Was it a TV ad? Was it a radio ad? Was it a print ad? The you issues know, were simpler it was easier much to simpler define. And easier to find. Now we're really bumping into the fact that we're saying, hey, you can have a publicity which isn't involved in an ad because ads may be associated with it. What does it mean to, to be professional? What does it mean to not be professional? You know, anybody can put ads in their own stuff. People will pay it. People to put ads in their own stuff. Where is this going? And, and I think that's the, the thing we've really seen with it. Again, I think that's, you know, to recognize, we just scratched the surface here. We talked about one particularly interesting case. And I think, you know, it, it is an interesting case, and it's an interesting case for what may happen in the future. It's interesting because, in part because it got litigated twice over two different issues. These yeah. kind of things often get, you know, papered over and solved and wrapped up in, in a way that does not require or, or sometimes specifically avoids a judge ever issuing a decision yeah. on it. Because we've talked before, sometimes people don't actually want answers to these questions. I think the thing with it is, is is that you also have again sort of treating these things is it's we really have three parties here that are involved yeah. and really more than three parties but three direct parties where they're all interest their, their interests are all at odds with each other and basically the court cases you see two of them going after each other and again that's why i sort of mentioned that you know in in a, most scenarios had the end of the first case of this the second one never would have happened mm-hmm. because Everybody was willing to agree with what was happening in the first case. Quite frankly, the first case never would have gone to trial because this just would have been willing buyer, willing seller. There would have been a contract. This would have been over. But you bumped into the fact that basically we couldn't do this thing that everybody wanted to do. You almost kind of look at it and say the two parties in the first case were almost on the same page with each other. They almost, they almost weren't disagreeing. They were yeah. you know, because they had to. But they kind of weren't disagreeing yeah. what they wanted Players to do. Players were telling EA, you need to pay us. And EA, was, EA basically said at the end, yeah, we, sh- we will. Yeah. And and but they couldn't. Yeah. It's such a bizarre situation. It really is a bizarre situation. And just to sort of follow up, you mentioned this fact that, you know, there's there may be some more of this in the future. Well, yeah, and, and this it's kind of a a version of something we've talked about before, which is that a lot of our laws, you know, laws tend to be I more and more I conceive of the laws as B2B or or B2C. Are they business to business laws that are meant to regulate commerce between sophisticated capable actors, or are they remedial or consumer protection laws meant to prevent, you know, people who can't advocate for themselves from being taken advantage of? And, you know, the Copyright Act we've mentioned before. 
the, the nature of the remedies and the rights is, is not really designed for you know for the music industry, for example, to go sue people who are pirating software. It was meant to prevent other music companies from from pirating their software. Companies that can actually afford to pay 150 million dollars, you know, in uh, or 150 thousand dollars in statutory damages. But what good is that big you know heavy hammer do against you know a single mother in Minneapolis? Yeah. Okay. So she so she she downloaded 15 movies. Uh, great, you know. So, so you, you got a two million dollar judgment. She's just going to declare bankruptcy. You're never yeah. going to collect it. Um, so, we we do see the law sort of, if not necessarily in the letter, at least in practice, treating different groups of of claimants or plaintiffs differently depending upon the purposes of the law and defendants for that matter. And here we see again. You know, there's a difference between being a professional athlete and different and an amateur athlete. But that in this case, the instance doesn't really derive from legal um, requirements specifically. It's because you've got this private organization inserted into the amateur side, but its analog in the professional side doesn't impose this limitation. Yeah, and again, part of the reason we look at that is say because what they're doing is they're imposing a moral or a policy limitation, which really, you know, the law is not designed to regulate. You know, it will do it when it's told. This is it what could, the outcome is right? supposed to be. Congress could come out and say, uh, we are going to forbid any public university that receives federal funding from participating in the NCAA <laughs> or any of its activities. <laughs> Note that he receives um, federal funding. Yes. We need a commerce clause. Yeah. So, so USC, actually, you know, all the private schools will still be in there. They still do. Um, but yeah, but you know, th- that's going to be their jurisdictional hook. We forbid you from participating until and unless X. And X will be whatever compensation arrangements they want to have for the student athletes. Congress could step in and fix this. Um, and really, th- a state could too. I mean, these schools get funding from the state. So yep. all it would take is Texas to step up and say, nope, we're not doing it anymore. But it wouldn't be Texas. It had to be Alabama because that's what everybody cares about <laughs> well, now. Well, it, I, I think any one of them could do it. Yeah. But the other thing I think you see with this, and, and you mentioned this, is it may not be the end for college football games. And we may see football games coming out, which yes. now look like college football games, but don't necessarily look like players. Yeah, so there, there is um, uh, a game that's, I think, coming out called Gridiron Champions. It's supposed to come out in to- uh, 2020. Uh, that's supposed to fill this void, and they're going to get around this likeness uh, rights issue by just having the the, the players all be uh, generic um, generic teams, generic players. Then they don't need licenses from the schools. But I will not be at all surprised if when this comes out, there is a team located in Johnson County, Iowa, that happens to wear black and gold. And then you can get third-party download packs and skins produced by others who are not associated <laughs> with the game manufacturer that slap Iowa's logos on it, or you know, or, or, or insert your team of choice here. So. Yep. This, this may be just an even more roundabout way to do that. We'll have to kind of keep an eye on that and, and see what happens. And I think the interesting thing about this is we've seen – it's not like this is new. I mean I remember no. you know, I had an in-television when I was a kid and I mean there was a football game and if correctly it was red and blue and they were home and visitor always. Like yep. the, the, the one color was always home, one color was always visitor and you always played home. That was the Did only you remember double dribble on the Nintendo, the original <laughs> Nintendo? It was basically the Bulls, the Celtics, the Lakers and somebody else. Yeah. I mean it was, it, was, it was a red team from Chicago. I mean it was really obviously the same teams. I forget. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean the – the players were, you know, blocks. Yeah. I mean, because that yeah. was the quality of the, the graphics. Yeah, the, the that animation point in time. Was, was very bad. Um, and so, yeah, you, you know, we're, we're getting into again accuracy as to what it is. And I think the other thing with it is just one that I think is fundamental with this. We're talking about rights of publicity here, especially for American football. Players were identified by their equipment. And we're really looking at the idea that says, you know, if you can, in many respects, make a football player that's literally 
empty equipment. You know, it's just the helmet, the jersey. <laughs> things like that. There, there's no person in it. But the fact is, is that would still potentially be identifiable mm-hmm. um, because of number, because of you know particular logos and colors of the ski- of the teams. This is probably only going to get more interesting. Yeah, it's definitely not going to get less. Um, I mean, and, and well, and there's you know there's there's other considerations too with the TV networks and whatnot getting involved. So I, I think probably the the next major shift, at least in college sports, as far as these rights go, is, is probably a ways off yet, maybe five years in the horizon when the next set of TV contracts all get renegotiated, and uh, we'll see if the money goes up or down. If it keeps going up, at some point, you know, this is more of a policy setting issue. But you talk to anybody who's involved uh, on the fan level in college sports, and there's a, a I've seen. People People who used to be very much against paying players have now said in the wake of these cases, there's so much money involved. These kids work so hard. I know they're getting a free education, and that's that's not nothing, certainly as much as college costs these days, but uh, they deserve more. And uh, people who I've, I never thought would have said that are now coming around and saying these pay- payers just need to get compensated. Now, whether that's because they just want to play EA NCAA football 2019 <laughs> or not, I couldn't tell you. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, the, uh, the the public sentiment seems to be shifting on this, and if we know nothing else about a democracy, uh, ch- changes in law often follow. So we'll yep. we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll have to see where it goes. Let's talk about what we're watching lately. Um, I've yep, got we try we try to put this in, in the TV show now. A lot of people have commented about the fact of wanting uh, you know wanting us to talk a little bit about sort of just what we're encountering in geek culture. So what's this portion of the episode? So I've got a couple non geeky things I've been watching uh, that I won't get into too much detail on. My wife and I like Ray Donovan and Shameless. So we've been watching those. Uh, I went to watch the new episode of Ray Donovan last night and promptly fell asleep. Not because it was boring, <laughs> but because I was just tired. Uh, and then uh, the new season of House or the last season of House of Cards is out. Uh, I watched the first episode. Um, I, was, I couldn't. It's, it's a very complicated show with a lot of characters, <laughs> and they introduced new characters. And it's been so long since the last season, I kind of forgot what happened. Yeah. So I'm kind of having trouble following it, but uh, it's it's interesting. And then weirdly. All of a sudden, my kids are super into Harry Potter. <laughs> Actually, I, so are mine. I tried to get them into Harry Potter for years and years. And they didn't care. And then this year is the year they're super into it. So. Now, there has been some new movies in the universe. I mean, they're not necessarily Harry Potter movies. I haven't but. seen those or even asked about them. Like, they're, they've been watching just the original movies over and over. Yeah. I have been asked probably 50 times in the last week, uh, can we go get Harry Potter 6? Yeah. It's the only one I don't have. I have seven. I don't know why I don't have six, but I don't. <laughs> I think I only have through five. I don't think I actually managed to acquire the last two when they came out. But. I've not seen the last two. I've seen the first six at, at some point. I, re- I read the first five books. I saw the first six movies, and I guess at some point I should finish that up. I think I read the first book, and I think I've seen the first three or four movies. Yeah, right. so. uh, I also, we're, I've also got on my slate with the kids... Um, we're going to watch Star Wars, like the whole thing. Because yep. they actually have not seen the original movies, like beginning to end and sat down and done it. But I think we're going to uh, try, I'm going to try machete order on them. So I actually did machete order on my kids, which they were a little confused by, just as, as what I bump into. Um, what's interesting is the movies that they've liked in conjunction with it. So my son really adores Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Um, that was my favorite when you know, I was a yeah, kid. Yeah, definitely. Is to, you know, Before I knew this. better. <laughs> um, my daughter really doesn't like any of the Star Wars. She just does not like the lightsaber battles. She, she finds them, I think, too brutal. Um, I thought they I were very boring when I was actually. a kid. That was the least interesting part to me. Yeah, I find them very interesting. Though. She thinks they're brutal because they're, 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 you know, they are brutal. I mean, people get their heads and their hands and everything else cut off. But they're very bloodless. And yeah. I think it's a very interesting thing. And we've been watching a lot of Clone Wars. Um, we're almost through the first season of Clone Wars. And again, like my daughter has no interest in watching it. She really doesn't like the, the episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, the last time we watched an episode, she just wanted to go read and, and read her book instead. Uh, because again, she's like, there's going to be lightsaber battles. Yep. <laughs> we should explain what machete order is. Star Wars has the problem that a lot of sagas have, which is the the 
internally chronologically consistent order of events does not match the the publication order. Like Chronicles of yep. Narnia has the same problem. Uh, and so there's always the question, should you watch in publication order or in chronological order? And I'm a purist, so I always go with publication order. Watch in the order they were, were made and they will make the most sense or at least – you know, if they don't, it's it's due to poor filmmaking, um, <laughs> which is a problem with the Star Wars. But, but a lot of people don't agree with that, and, and part of the problem is I can't go back and do it the other way now. Like it's impossible because I, you know, I remember the other ones. Uh, and the idea behind Machete Order is both of those are wrong, and there there is a correct way <laughs> to watch Star yeah. Wars, and it is to watch four and five, and then go back and watch two and three, and then watch six. And uh, right? well, actually, I think you watch four then. Four, no. then two, then no, two. You have to three, watch five, five because the end of five, Vader says, I am your father. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and you, and you do don't that. know if it's yeah, true yet right. if you haven't seen it. So then you go watch two and three because because neither two, and until the very end of three, is it revealed if, is, that, is that true or not? Yep. Although we all already know because we've seen six. Yep. Um, and then, and you'll notice episode one is missing because you just don't need it. <laughs> well, we did watch episode one, and actually my kids enjoyed episode one. It's what it is. They really enjoyed, actually, they enjoyed episode, you know. Six, I think, more than anything else. Um, they also, quite frankly, enjoyed episode three, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, I mean, it's the best of the prequels. Some of the best of the prequels, but I thought it was interesting that that was one of their more you know desired ones. Yeah. I think the problem you bump into with with the Star Wars trilogy as a whole is also for all of us, we remember not knowing who Luke's father was. Yes, and really, the is this true or not? And, and we needed another movie to resolve it. Mm-hmm. There's no way to do that now. It's the same way as it's the you know, and, and I joke about it as the other great one. And I remember this from when I was a kid. And my parents, who shot Jr. Yeah, we all know who shot Jr. We probably don't remember because like that one's kind of fallen out of the public consciousness. But at the same time, it's one of those things. Like there was a time when nobody knew, and mm-hmm. I mean, the start of the next season was going to be such a huge thing. I remember it being like all the TV guides, all the newspapers talking about what's it going to be, speculating yep. about it. That just doesn't exist. You can go back and you can watch the show now, and none of that exists because we all know the Everybody answer knows. to the equation. Is, I think it was Edgar Allan Poe that had this this idea that what what you aren't told is way more interesting than what you are. Yeah. And a lot of his stories were were based upon setting up a situation that the resolution might be terrifying, but he yeah. never tells you what happens. So you just have to think about it. Yeah, and it's scary. Um, Lovecraft actually did a lot of that too. Yeah. If I remember that was a thing he was sort of known for. Is it's the this thing just exists and we don't really know what it is or what it is, but it's vastly more powerful than it's we the, can the jaws. The jaws rule: don't show the shark. Right? Yeah. If you can't see yeah. it, it's much more terrifying. Exactly. Yeah. Um, let's see what else. Uh, recent movies: we saw The Incredibles two, um, which I don't remember that well now because I was managing. Yeah, my kids saw The Incredibles two. I haven't seen it, but it was good. Uh, uh, my wife and I saw Deadpool too. Did you see it? <laughs> I saw Deadpool too. Yep. Did we talk about this already? Uh, we haven't talked about it on the show. I don't think it, we may have talked about it on the show. I can't. There's remember. only so much we can really say about <laughs> Deadpool two uh, to, to to not have our iTunes rating become uh, inappropriate. <laughs> Suffice it to say, it was a lot like Deadpool one. Uh, in every way you would expect. <laughs> Fact, it to yes. Be. The only problem I had with Deadpool two is I truly thought I think in this way I may have said this. Like I think Deadpool two had too much plot, and I very yeah. very would rarely would say that about a movie. But Deadpool two really does have a pretty complicated plot, which really doesn't fit with what the Deadpool movies yeah. are. Fortunately, they managed to, to mostly destroy the plot, so it doesn't wind up <laughs> yeah. mattering. But. And then uh, one that I have here for honorable mention, we didn't actually see this in the theater, but it's out on Netflix now. I don't know how my kids my are kids did it. see it in the theater actually. Hotel Transylvania three, which I only <laughs> want to mention. I haven't seen the whole thing. I've just seen this one scene. And if you haven't seen it, just think about this scene in isolation <laughs> and how absurd this is. Okay, so spoiler alert: if you haven't seen Hotel Transylvania three, and don't want the ending to be ruined. Uh, and trust me, this will not ruin it. So. 
I don't know what the plot of this movie is, other than at the point where I watched, and, it, and it's got Adam Sandler as the voice of Dracula and a bunch of other people. At the point I tuned into this, the main characters have to dance the Macarena to prevent a giant malevolent squid being controlled by Van Helsing, who is now an evil steampunk robot DJ, <laughs> from destroying Atlantis. Uh, and the monsters are all in Atlantis because they were brought there on a giant cruise ship piloted by Van Helsing's granddaughter who's trying to get revenge on Dracula for some reason. Okay? <laughs> so absorb that but information. Van Helsing and Dracula having needed to have yeah, revenge. I, okay, I, I get that. Thanks. I get that. But then <laughs> absorb that information and, and then this following tidbit, this movie made $700 million. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's, I think it says you know some of the things. But at the same time, we can also look at it and say that's almost such an absurd description. It probably is a good movie. <laughs> well, this is like someone did a Mad Lib to put together a plot. <laughs> Which actually, my kids are saying, talking about the things my kids are super into right now. My kids are super into Mad Libs right now um, and having a lot of fun with them. And they've gotten into the the level of like trying to pick the words that sort of least fit what the yeah. what the theme's going to be. So like we just did the one that was you know like you know going to the bakery, and of course, so everything was the what adjectives can we come up with that something you would least want to encounter at the bakery, yeah. which does make the Mad Lib hilarious, admittedly. <laughs> Mine haven't gotten into that yet. Uh, I should probably give them a try on it. The last time we did those, it was all just, just toilet humor stuff. Which, yeah, we, we have know, a bit of that problem, six, too, but, but it's, they, they've gotten, now they're starting to realize they're funnier if they don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. That's good. Uh, anything else you guys are watching? Um, that's really it. I'm, you know, I'm just not a consumer of TV for the most part. Um, it's what it was. Haven't seen really any movies recently either. Just been, you know, working too hard it's and things like busy. that. You know, a lot of it's also the, you know, I'm still playing a lot of video games. Um, I got super into the Mad Games in World of Tanks Blitz. So those of you who don't know, one of my big games is World of Tanks Blitz. Um, I loved the concept. I played them aggressively for like two days and then got so fed up with not being able to figure out what to play. Mm-hmm. And like people obviously knowing more which tanks was a control, I stopped playing the Mad <laughs> Games. Um, but I still like, I loved the concept of it. I thought the videos that they did to support it were just hilarious. Um, and sort of the way they played around with, you know, you don't need a truck, you need a tank. Um, <laughs> And stuff like that. But yes, I've definitely played a lot of that. Played a lot of Hearthstone. Um, I'm still playing a lot of Pokemon Go, um, which, you know, is kind of a pain because I can't necessarily get out and walk around as much as I need to. It's harder. um, To do it aggressively. What was the one flying thing that was always at our office? You used to always be able to catch them from our our office. Zubats originally was the thing originally. That was very early in the game. It's the, we we do actually have a spawner that's in our office building, but it's it's strange sometimes what it spawns. Well, your side of the building is poor Wi-Fi. Mine doesn't. Yeah, definitely I get poor Wi-Fi on my side of the building. Uh, speaking of video games, there's a Hearthstone expansion that was announced yep. last week. Um, looks like usual goofy Hearthstone stuff. I'm, I'm excited for that. I'm kind of I'm bored with the meta. I think we're both bored of the meta in Hearthstone right now. And it's you know we both both of us have commented about the deck we really love playing. If you know anything about Hearthstone, is the Mechathune deck. Uh, I love playing Mechathune just because it's of the basically fact a deck that, requir- that allows you to not play the game the way that it's supposed to be played. Normally, you try to beat your opponent by doing enough damage to to take their hit points down. This before deck, you run out of cards. Before you run out of cards, this deck you don't. You try to run out of cards and then get down to one card and play it. And yeah, you win. And, and you win the game. And yeah. and it's it's a really interesting sort of thing with it but it's I think the problem you bumped into is it seems like the metas it, it, we were commenting about this is it's gotten very stuck uh, yeah. of just it's, it's the same there's four two or ways five to, decks. there's four or five decks and the problem with it is is it's they're uh, unfortunately well balanced 
Um, it's very fact, paper, rock, A beats B, yeah. B beats C, yeah. C beats D, and D beats A. And so you bump into the, you play, have to play one of these four, but yet the other three will yeah. beat you in a It's the meta we always things. thought we wanted until we got it. Now we realize it's incredibly dull. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that's what I think we've seen. All right. Well, I think that's it for this time. Uh, so next episode, we're, we're still working on bringing in some guests. Uh, we have a, a large number of topics. Kirk and I sat down, I think, last week and kind of just brainstormed a bunch of ideas. So here's what we're looking at doing in no particular order. Uh, data privacy issues, and then we've got ideas on uh, video games, uh, emulation software, mashups, something on music, uh, anime, tabletop RPGs, maybe something with mystery science theater, uh, cult classics, fan-generated content, white hat hacking, and one that we're really excited about, horror movies, in particular the Rocky Horror Picture Show, <laughs> and all of the, the crowd participation stuff that goes with it's that. There's a little bit of the cult classics sort of coming in there too, um, but I think part of that is cult classics, horror movies, some of these things as yeah. we're talking about, is the idea of crowd participation events mm-hmm. and being part of it and I think the, the Rocky Horror Picture Show being one of those for any of you guys who are seriously into that particularly where like you know the the, the, the memes sort of generate organically from, from the audience and yep. then you know does anybody own that yep. or, or not? Like, can, can I, you know, can I just go publish a script of all those things? And people have, and you can yep. download scripts to take with you, and along with your newspaper and your toast, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you haven't seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show or don't know what I'm talking about, just just Google it. <laughs> just Google, just Google it. it. Not not at work. Just, just Google it. Yeah, that's um, definitely a not safe for work thing. I mean, it's, um, and your it's best pretty tame. <laughs> it's pretty tame by modern standards. By but modern standards, but. Um, uh, and then we're also trying to find some way to talk about Game of Thrones more, but that'll I think that comes out this spring. So uh, it we'll might be, be yeah. And it's, the problem that. we bump into there is it's uh, Ben is an advocate of watching the TV shows, and I'm an advocate of the books. I've not read the <laughs> books yet. I probably should. <laughs> All right. Uh, so there's the music, and it is time to go. If you have questions, comments, topic ideas, criticisms, complaints, remarks, adulations, or rants, you can send your thoughts to us on Twitter at LGGpod or email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on our Facebook page, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, and find us there. Subscribe to this podcast on one or more of the platforms, or even better, all of the platforms to artificially inflate our listening uh, numbers. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and all the other places where you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a review. Reviews are how we attract more listeners and grow the brand by making it easier for others to find us. Uh, speaking of finding us, I am on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and Kirk is at Kirk DMN. Yes, I said that right. Yeah. Uh, thanks. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. More and play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri.